be looking this morning at Romans chapter 4. So I hope that you will uh, open your Bible, take one that's provided there for you if you don't have one, and turn to Romans chapter 4. If you're using that pew Bible, you can find, and you don't quite know where the Paul's letter to the Romans is, you can find the page number in the order of service in the worship folder. You can find an outline on the back to help you follow along. And uh, we will work our way through this passage of Scripture at the beginning of Romans 4. This past Wednesday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky addressed the United States Congress by live video from his war-torn country. Maybe you heard some of the speech as he made an impassioned appeal for help in defending their country against Russia. Now, I'm preaching Romans 4 today. This is not my place to say whether, what our military should do in this conflict, but, and we pray for our leaders. We pray for them as they make hard decisions. Uh, I simply want to point out, though, from this speech how Zelensky used our history to make his case. He said, remember Pearl Harbor? Remember September 11th? Our country experiences the same every day right now. Now, maybe it's just so obvious we don't even think about it, but why would he compare the situation today with events that took place more than 20, more than 80 years ago? I mean, no two moments in history are identical, but if there is enough overlap... Memories of our own suffering and our own resolve could motivate, motivate the United States to act again in the same way. Romans 4, Paul, we might be surprised to find Paul going back in history. I mean, he's been working his way forward through the first three chapters. In chapter 3, he had concluded that no human being could justify themselves through obeying the law. So, what hope do we have to escape God's wrath at the final judgment? But then, the light at the end of the tunnel. Now, finally, in Jesus, a righteousness from God has been manifested apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all who believe. And that was a a radical idea, especially to Paul's fellow Jews. They thought that their standing before God was based on their Jewish identity as God's chosen people. Therefore, Jews in, Gentiles out. Jews in, everybody else out. Uh, No, Paul said, we saw this in uh, Romans 3, verses 23 and 24, no, all have sinned, all people of all uh, races, ethnicities, backgrounds, all, all people have sinned and All people can be justified by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So why then, if we just finally got to Jesus, why why in Romans 4 is Jesus not even mentioned until the very last sentence? Paul is going to go back in Jewish history to make his gospel appeal in the present, uh, present for him and for us today. The situations, of course, two situations in history are not identical, But there is enough overlap to compel the response, to motivate us to act, the response of faith that Paul is looking for. And this would be, of course, particularly pointed for his uh, Jewish segment of, of, of the Jewish segment of his readers, but there are valuable lessons for us as well. Here's the theme sentence for today. Even before Christ, Jewish faith points to God's grace for all who believe. Simple, but again, thinking back, going back to Jewish history, even before Christ, 
Jewish faith points to God's grace for all who believe. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 1 through 17, actually breaking off after the first part of that verse. For now, I'll read the last paragraph of chapter 3 and the first of chapter 4 that will go with our first point. So, um, again, backing up to Romans 3, verse 27. If we are, if we're all sinners and we're all justified by grace through faith in Christ, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By, by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And we'll stop there for now. This is part one. Testimonies. Thinking about uh, David and and Abraham. Uh, We've got two testimonies here. Faith gives no reason for boasting. It is the recognition of God's blessing. Faith gives no reason for boasting. It is the recognition of God's blessing. So remember, to be justified is to somehow gain a righteous standing before God at the final judgment so as not to be condemned. I mean, that's something that should interest us all. According to Paul, the gospel tells us the how of justification. Really, the the who, the only way to be justified is through faith. How? And in whom? Through in faith in, in Jesus Christ. But a, a Jew might not be convinced. And Paul says, well, remember Abraham? I mean, that's like, that's like having a debate over term limits for the United States president and say, well, what about the example of George Washington? I mean, you're like, oh, d- debate over, right? Because, uh, and Abraham here, uh, to the Jews, Abraham is literally the father of their country. Uh, surely his example would settle the debate. Well, you could say, well, wait, 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 Paul, you can't use Abraham in this uh, argument. That, that historical situation is not identical. Abraham was before Christ, so he couldn't have had faith in, in him. And Paul isn't claiming that Abraham was a believer in Jesus per se, uh, explicitly, um, consciously. The question is, was Abraham justified by works or by faith? And on this question, Paul says, my opinion, your opinion, doesn't matter. What does the Scripture say? I mean, let's let's go back to it. Then he quotes Genesis 15. Now, of course, you're going, if you're going to go back to the story of Abraham, you're going back to Genesis. And by the time you're working your way through the book of Genesis and you get to Genesis 15, the part that's quoted here, God had already called Abraham 
to leave his home, to go with his wife and a few relatives to a new place where God would bless him, making him a nation that is a distinct people in their own homeland. But that was back in Genesis 12. By Genesis 15, already many years have gone by, and, and Abraham is still childless and homeless. That is, he's still wandering as a nomad in this land. So uh, I'm going to read just the first part of Genesis 15 uh, for you. You can turn there if you would like, or you can just listen. Genesis 15, uh, the source for this quotation, starts this way. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram. Uh, we'll see why he was called Abram back at that time a little later, but this is Abraham. Uh, Lord, the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, one of his servants. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. And number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Oh, I'd, I'd love to take more time on that. that, that just taking that, and imagine a, a night sky, no electric lights. Abraham, let me, let me, let me just take you outside. I mean, he, he said, hey, come Come outside. I have something to show you. I want you to look at the stars. I want you to see all of them. You know, if, if you can count them, you can't count. Them. Just, if you can, this, you see, you, are you getting that? Are you getting that picture? That's what your offspring is going to be like. And Abraham believed God. He, he looked, he saw, okay. Yeah. Yeah. He, he believed God. And, and that faith was counted to him as Righteousness, counted to him as righteousness, makes this passage relevant to Paul's discussion of justification. And because Paul is contrasting faith with works, that is, obedience to the law, then we need to think carefully here. Because, yes, faith is something you do, but it is not considered a, a good work or a good deed that somehow earns you, uh, some kind of righteous standing. See, I am good. I have faith. Therefore, I have done what is good and right. Therefore, I am righteous. No, faith, it's very different. Faith is relying on God to do what you cannot do. Remember, he's childless. God's made the promise. He's childless. He's unable to have a child. And God says, like, no, this is what I'm going to do. Faith is relying on God to do what you cannot do. We understand that? Now, faith, Abraham's faith being counted to him as righteousness is not like uh, getting to the checkout line at the grocery store and the cashier asks, so uh, cashier credit. Uh, faith, faith or works. Like, you, you're not going to not, not be able to check out at the end of your life and, uh, and, and somebody's going to ask you at the line, um, faith or works, you know, e either one. Uh, bo both have value, but we'll, we'll, t we'll accept anything. Um, as if one way or the other, you have what it takes to get what you need. This is more like being desperately hungry, going to the store, filling the cart, and all you have on you are maxed out credit cards. What you have is not enough. What you have will not be accepted. 
The only thing that will get you what you need is someone else. You trusting, relying, depending on someone else who can pay for you. The verse here in Romans 3, quoting Genesis 15, excuse me, uh, Romans 4, verse 3, uh, quoting Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Yes, faith was counted as righteousness, but it's faith in God, trusting God, relying on God. Faith does not have value in itself apart from the object of faith. It's the one in whom you trust that makes all the difference. So if the question is faith or works, yes, the answer is faith is what counts. But ultimately, we have to say in Abraham's story, God is what counts. Or in the context of Romans 3, more specifically, Christ is what counts. To put that in other words, you are saved by God's grace through your faith. And if you're familiar with those words, grace or faith, we talk about them a lot. We even talk about this idea of being saved by grace through faith. Maybe you don't quite know the significance of that, how it all fits together. Paul is here to help us this morning. This is, this is really, really important. He turns from the specific example of Abraham in verse 3 to a general principle. From specific example to general principle, verse 4. Back to Romans 4. Now, to the one, so anyone, any person, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. This is true for anyone. It's true for everyone. It's true for ancient Israel, ancient Rome, modern-day America. If you put in 40 hours of work, you expect 40 hours of pay, right? That's what you are due. That is what you are owed. Now, probably most of us here, if you're getting a paycheck, you're getting uh, paid by direct deposit or something like that. But if you remember the days uh, when you'd get to the end of the week and your boss maybe gave, like walked around, your supervisor handing out paychecks, uh, that, that was a real thing. It happened long, long ago. Uh, but it, it really did happen. But, it, but just imagine, on Friday afternoon, if he or she comes and says, hey, I have a gift for you. And you say, oh, no. You're not doing me any favors. I clocked in every day for this piece of paper, and it's mine. And I say, wait, wait, no, no, no. I'm not talking about your paycheck. I got you a birthday gift for your birthday. You're like, oh, well, you didn't need to do that. That was really nice. I mean, that was, and it, it, that's, that's a gift. That's something you did not earn. Nobody, nobody owed it to you. They didn't have to do it for you, which makes it all the more special when they give it when you get it. They were generous. You are grateful. And Paul is, just te- is teaching us here a lesson on grace. In fact, the word translated here as gift in verse 4 is the same as the one for grace. It's what he's talking about. And, and grace as gift is completely incompatible with justification by works. Because then your standing uh, before God would be based on what you do and what you have earned. You could say you earned it. You could say God owes it to you. You could boast about it. Look what I got. I did all the right things. Of course he gave it to me, naturally. Justification by grace, salvation as a gift from God, has to be received by faith. Do you get get this now? Salvation by grace has to be through faith. Faith as empty hands ready to receive. No claims to deserve it, no demands out of entitlement, humble, grateful, because God gave it to you when he didn't owe it to you. 
out of His goodness, out of His generosity, sheer grace. Verse 5, Paul says the same way that justification happened for Abraham, by grace through faith, can happen for anyone. So verse 5 continues this general principle. This, now, this, this same, the same way it worked for Abraham can work for anyone. Verse 5, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Now, not talking about being unemployed, but not trying to work for your salvation. And to the one who does not work, but instead believes, trusts, has faith in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but Paul just kicked it up a notch. Because it's one thing to, to shift our mental conception here of, okay, uh, my justification, ultimately my salvation is not something that uh, I have earned through what I have done. No, it's a gift. He just, he just, it's, it's something that he gives that I simply receive by faith. That, that's, that's one shift. Here's a bigger one. You are justified not rather than your works, but in spite of your works. And that's the only way we can be justified. He justifies the ungodly. In, since we, that it has to be that way since we have all sinned. That's why Paul's next move, quoting David uh, from Psalm 32, uh, in the last verses, verses uh, 6, 7, and 8, why that, why that makes perfect sense for him to go there next. And again, what we have said, uh, what we could describe as a personal testimony, David's experience is worded in such a way so as to include anyone, everyone. So there you go. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. And and you understand, well, we know, okay, well, yes, it's a psalm, it's a song. You understand why those words should be sung. Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. Have you known the feeling, the joy that it, that it, it stirs a song in you? You want to you sing it, not just, yeah, 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 I'm forgiven. We talk so much maybe about forgiveness of sins that maybe you don't, maybe we, it doesn't register. We don't really, I don't know, feel it. What if, what if we flipped it around? Maybe this would help us to, to feel it. What about the opposite in a relationship with a fam, family member or a friend? You did something wrong. Maybe it, maybe it was a moment of just stupidity, or maybe it was years of bad decisions. Maybe you regret it. Maybe you tried to apologize, but... They can't get over it. You can't get past it. You can't get to forgiveness. And your sin is a stain on your relationship. It's a stain on you and that just can't be covered. It seems like they will always hold it against you. There will always be this rift, this chasm that can't be crossed. How do you feel? Sad doesn't cut it. I mean, you, you, there's, there's, you, you stay in your guilt. You feel like, I, I can't get away from what I've done. There's a hopelessness. It seems impossible to fix things, to, to restore the relationship. Without forgiveness, what can be done? It's a, it's a dead end. It's a dark place. 
But imagine that you've been in the relationship, the, the one who lied, the one who took, the betrayer, the unfaithful one, and your lawless deeds have been forgiven. Grace. Your, your sins have been covered even though you did not deserve them to be. That's grace. Your sins are not counted against you any more. Sheer grace. How does that feel? It feels so good. It feels, feels fr- like just relief. There is freedom. There is rest. There is hope. You can get there. You can get to that place with God through faith that humbly receives His grace. That's the good news that David is speaking about. He's singing about it. And he says, that's the blessing. That's the good place of being, when you know that your sins have been forgiven, when you receive God's grace by faith. Now, if you'd rather go with your works... Your deeds, you, you know, like, hey, I, I'm, I'm too proud. I, I want to get, I, I just want to get what I've earned. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take what I've uh, accomplished, what, however much or however little. Like, no, no, no. You might, if, you, if you go that way, you might be fooled into boasting. You might be fooled into a sense of entitlement. More realistic, though, is your sins, your deeds, your works will lead to God's wrath. But faith is not about boasting. It's about the recognition of blessing. It's about receiving God's grace. And by definition, that's not just for good people. It's for sinners. He justifies the ungodly. It's for anyone, for everyone. Now, Paul, remember, back to what Paul is doing in the bigger picture. He's trying, especially trying to convince his fellow Jews on this point, who may be thinking, well, sure, testimonies of of Abraham, of David, could mean that any Jew could be justified. Uh, Gentiles? Really? Verse 9, right? Let's pick up and read the next paragraph for our second part. Is this blessing, the blessing uh, to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, having sins forgiven, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised, for the Jews only or also for the Gentiles? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after But before he was circumcised, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised." You're getting lost to see if we can pull pull it together. Paul is still using Abraham's testimony, so to speak, to make his case. And here it rests more specifically on the timeline of events, the order of events. So this is part two, timeline. Faith connects someone to the covenant. The subsequent sign does not. Faith 
connects someone to the covenant. The subsequent sign does not. Now, it's pretty simple to say that Abraham was justified uh, through his faith in Genesis 15, and he was circumcised in Genesis 17, and hmm, what comes first? 15, then 17. Okay, that, that doesn't seem like a, a really you know, profound argument, um, and it may not even seem like an important detail unless you had thought it worked in the other direction. See, as a Jew, and we've, we've said this before, as a Jew, you may have assumed your Jewish identity, your, uh, as a member of God's chosen people, signified by your circumcision, was what put you in right standing before God. In short, you thought circumcision led to justification. So that if you were circumcised, you were already good with God. You were already prepared for the final judgment. Everybody else would be condemned. You would be justified. Paul has been saying that anyone can be justified by grace because it's by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, of which circumcision could be seen as one. Works of the law, they actually condemn everyone. Uh, They show us that we've sinned. And once again, Abraham's story is relevant, particularly in its timing, the order of events. He was justified through faith well before he was circumcised, and that is not an incidental fact. Circumcision was a, uh, Genesis 17 will say, that it is a sign of the covenant. That's repeated here in Romans 4. It's a sign of the covenant, Paul says, that served as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith before he was circumcised, or as it says, while he was uncircumcised. Or we could even say, while, while Abraham was a Gentile, he was justified. I mean, that's, that's the, the, the weight of what he's saying here. Now, seal, when it talks about a seal here, it's, it's not talking about you know, kind of sealing a container, like you got a piece of Tupperware or something. Uh, seal, like seal, not sealing a container, sealing a document, sealing a, uh, a contract, or in this case, a covenant. Uh, what a seal does, of course, is to uh, confirm or to authenticate, to certify, in the same way that the seal, like the, the signet pressed into the wax, would show the, the authenticity of and the security of that uh, agreement, that document, um, certifying the arrangement or the relationship. Now, a sign may serve as a seal, but by itself, it's just a pointer to something else. And that, like, oh, okay. A uh, sign may serve as a seal, but by itself it's just a pointer to something else. Maybe you would uh, resonate with this a little bit more. I often deal with this uh, in a wedding ceremony at the exchanging of rings. Rings, of course, are a uh, not, not a biblical sign, but, but it, it, they are a traditional sign of the covenant that is being made. A ring is a tangible expression of the intangible, the invisible vows that are being made. Can you get married without exchanging rings, without wearing a ring? Well, yes, you can, you can make and keep your promises without those rings, which is good in case you lost your ring. You are suddenly now not divorced. You, it's okay. It's all right. You can, you can make your, and keep your promises without those rings. It's a nice tradition. I think it's fitting. I think maybe it's even wise. It's wise to have physical expressions of, of intangible, uh, invisible things, um, but not absolutely necessary. By the same token pun intended, just because, you, by the same token, uh, just because you put on the ring doesn't make you married. Sometimes I'll, I'll joke about this in a in wedding uh, rehearsal. You've probably, you've probably been to a wedding rehearsal. It's not the real wedding, 
It's getting ready for the wedding, which is a practice run, a dry run for the next day. And uh, we're going through the wedding rehearsal. And I'll get to, get to the part in the ceremony where I'm, t- and I'm telling the bride and the groom, at this point, I'm going to say, you may kiss your bride. And everybody, bride and groom, wedding party, family sitting there, like, <laughs> you know, why? Because it's like, well, wait a minute, if we, if we kiss right now, does that make more, does it mean we're married? Like, no. And we're like, no, no, it doesn't. It's like, but, but you understand what's going on there. That kiss is in some sense, a, is meant to depict a seal on that covenant promise that are, that are being made. And you can kiss at the rehearsal, doesn't make you married, probably kiss before that or some other time, it doesn't, it doesn't make you married, but, some, but here's the thing, some people in churches in our day can fall into the same confusion, thinking that because they have the sign that they automatically have the reality that it points to. I, you know, I, I was baptized, so I, you know, I'm a Christian. Or I, I came, came to church, I, I take communion, so I'm a Christian. So I, I, I belong to God. I'm going to heaven. My sins are forgiven. But here, both of those things should be a sign and a seal of faith that you already have. The sign comes after the faith. Without faith, those signs, those seals mean nothing. Uh, to, to go back to marriage. In marriage, uh, with, with love and faithfulness, rings are a beautiful thing. But rings without love and faithfulness don't mean anything. Or even worse, you can have the ring, and if there's hurt and betrayal and abuse, they can mean, it can be absolutely repulsive to you, that ring. Without faith in Christ, the sign of baptism and the Lord's Supper are empty, or worse, they are blasphemy. They should be a sign and a seal of the faith you already have, the faith that you are living out on a daily basis. With faith, they are a beautiful expression, a reaffirmation of relationship. It's the faith is what counts, not just the sign or the seal. So Paul's point, again, if Abraham was justified by faith, before his circumcision, there's no reason you, as a non-Jew and a sinner like everyone else, can't, can't be justified when you follow in the footsteps of Abraham's faith. Faith is what counts. Faith in Christ. Historically speaking, it, it couldn't have been too controversial to say that Abraham's justification came before circumcision. No more controversial than saying Genesis 15 comes before Genesis 17. But then, what Paul does in verse 11, to say that the purpose of that timing, which is to say God's purpose, God's intent for that timing, that timeline, that that order of events, was to make Abraham the father of all who believe, that was a big deal. That was a controversial statement, and he's going to defend that with one more lesson in grace. I'm going to read from verse 11, the middle of verse 11, on through the first part of uh, verse 17 to, for our last point. So, middle of verse 11, the purpose was to make, the purpose of this order, justification, 
then circumcision, which means justification by faith, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, recipients of the promise, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. And we'll stop there. This is our last part for this morning. Trustworthiness. We've heard testimonies and the timeline, and we're going to see now the trustworthiness of God's promise. Faith preserves God's promise and extends that grace to everyone. So, should recognize, yes, we're still talking about the testimony of Abraham, his, his example, uh, his experience, and it still has to do with the timeline, promise before law. Uh, Paul will make this even clearer in Galatians 3. The promise came before the law did, but even more... Here, it has to do with the nature of promise. The the nature of promise? Well, okay, before we even get to that, what was the promise? Uh, The quotation in the beginning of verse 17 comes from chapter 4, verse 17, Romans, comes from Genesis 17, which we've already already referred to, right before uh, we're introduced to circumcision. So back in Genesis 17. Let me read a little bit of that. So I'm turning to Genesis 17, and I'm going to read verses 4 through 8. Behold, God says to Abraham, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, which means exalted father, uh, no longer will your name be Abram, but your name shall be, be Abraham, father of a multitude. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Okay, that's, that's good. Uh, so if God promised Abraham and his descendants the land of Canaan, why does Paul say here in Romans 4 that he would be the heir of the world? Not just Canaan. Not just Palestine is the inheritance, the world. Now, Paul was not the first person to say this. Rabbis uh, had before him saw the kingdom extending beyond the Jordan, extending beyond the, the 
Mediterranean Sea on one side, the, the Jordan on the other, the, the mountains to the north, the, the desert, the Red Sea to the south. The, the rabbis before saw him extending, this extending to the world, and this was based ultimately on the same truth that Paul mentioned in chapter 3. If, there is, if God is one, not, not many gods, one God, this was, this was for, the, for Israel the most fundamental doctrine, their, their, their most basic creed, their statement of faith, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Paul said, okay, if there's one God, then he has to be the God of the Gentiles too, right? God over the Gentiles. If he made the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1-1, then it all belongs to him. Psalm 24 begins, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. How many of them? All of them. Or as Isaiah heard the seraphim in the throne room of heaven in Isaiah 6, the whole earth is full of his glory. Or human hi- and, and, or think of how human history is moving toward this end. This is, this is our eschatology. This is our end times doctrine, Habakkuk 2.14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The world is his realm. The, the, the world is his kingdom. The promise that God's covenant people would inherit the world, and the Greek word here is cosmos, think cosmological, like the the universe, everything, the universe, because it all belongs to God. That's not not God reneging on his promise. Oh, wait a minute, God, you said you were going to give us Canaan. I'm giving you everything. He's expanding the promise. That's what the original promise anticipated, what the original promise pointed to. He was never going to get to the border and stop here. Oh, this is, uh, this is ours. That's theirs. It's all his. Now we're back to Paul's argument. How is someone made right with God? Through works of the law or through faith? If it's through the law, verse 14, he says, faith is null. The promise is void. How does this, how does this somehow cancel the check? I don't know. We don't write checks anymore. Wait, how, does this somebody, how does this cancel the check of God's promise? Two ways. One, verse 15, the law brings wrath. We've said this before. In terms of justification, all the law does is to serve as a, in terms of justification, that's an important thing. There are other things the law can do, but in terms of our justification, all the law does is serve as a standard to condemn, not a checklist by which we can be exonerated or acquitted or justified. Because we all sin. If we try to stand on our record, we're doomed. Though Paul does note that where there is no law, there is no transgression, doesn't mean there's no sin or guilt if you don't have the law. It's more like if there are no, if there are no speed limit signs on that stretch of road, you're not conscious of when or how, by how much you may have broken the law. Um, but here's, this, here's the other reason why this nullifies the promise. If the promise comes through law, faith is null, promise is void, because law completely goes against the nature of promise. A promise functions as grace or gift. Now, I understand you can, have, you can make your, a promise like, to, to your little toddler, like, hey, if you're really good, when we go, as we go through the grocery store, uh, when we get to the checkout line, mom's going to get you a piece of candy. You, could, you can make that kind of promise, a contingent promise. Or you can make a promise, hey, if you win your baseball game, well, I'll take you out for ice cream. That's not, that's not the kind of promise we're talking about here. The nature of this promise means it is apart from 
what you do, how you perform, what level of success you have. It goes against the nature of promise altogether in the way that he is talking about promise because promise here functions as grace, as gift. This is what I am going to do for you. God's grace, a gift received by you. And it's even stronger than that. See, when Paul says in verse 16, this is why. We're getting another purpose statement like we had in verse 11. He's saying it's because the law brings wrath, the previous verse. It's because the law brings wrath, because the law condemns everyone. That's why God made justification depend on faith, so that the promise and, and what's that expanded notion of God's promise? Not just the Jews in their own little place in the Middle East, but God's covenant people saved by grace through faith like Abraham, whom God also promised would be the father of many nations. They would one day inherit all that belongs to their heavenly father. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. The whole earth is full of his glory. And if all this rests, not on your obedience, not on your performance, not if you win the game, we'll take you out for ice cream, but on God's grace, then you can take that promise to the bank. It depends on you. You're like, well, I hope it's all going to work out. Or maybe you're just, you know, typically confident. Oh, yeah, I got this. No. The way to have confidence is to know that it rests on God, that it is by grace and then, you're, then what you're relying on is the character, the integrity, the fact that when God says something, He means it, and when He makes a promise, He keeps it. That's what's all packed in when it says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. God can do it. God will do it. He's going to do it, so I can, I'll, just, I'll just rest in Him. I'll just trust him. I'm just going to go with him, and I'll let him take care of it. That's faith. That's the faith that counts. And if all this rests, not on your obedience, not on your performance, but on God's grace, you can take the promise to the bank. If it is guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring, all who share his faith, if faith is what counts, then this can be for you, for you and me. Now, Paul, yes, Paul, the, the primary argument here, he's working to convince uh, the Jews that Gentiles could get in on the good news of the gospel in Christ. The redemption that came through, yes, the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. But, but, but our prayer here today, my, my desire today for this moment is that you have come to a new appreciation of grace, of God's grace, not just that he's that he's kind and he's, he's sort of, you know, he, he'll cut you some slack. That's not grace. Grace is you deserved judgment and wrath. And out of his goodness, out of his generosity, he took the wrath, bore the shame, and we stand forgiven at the cross. And if, if the promise rests on that, on his grace, on his integrity, on his faithfulness, on his power, on his wisdom, then we can trust him. We can believe him. And I hope that, that these lessons from history motivate you today to respond in 
the same kind of faith. That's what this is all about. Uh, Faith, not just believing that God exists, that there must be a God out there because tulips are coming up. That's a start. That's a start. That's what what we saw in, in Genesis, or excuse me, Romans 1, all creation is pointing to the gods out there, but, but this is, now, but we're going further. Faith is not just believing that God exists, that there must be a, a creator out there, but taking him at his word when he makes his promise that believing in him, the one who, the one who justifies the ungodly, the ungodly like me, the ungodly like you. If the question is works or faith, then faith is what counts. But that's because faith is the only way to receive God's grace as grace, his promise as promise, his gift as just a gift out of his goodness. Even before Christ, Jewish faith points to God's grace for all who believe, and I pray that's all who are here today. Would you bow with me? Oh God, we pray. I am asking that as we consider not just the doctrine of justification, but as we consider and we see who you are in your grace, that that would prompt us to respond in faith today. And not just the, that, that maybe that one time of, of uh, saying yes to God, like, I, would you save me, forgive my sins and save me. I, I'm thankful that I, I'm, I believe many here in this room, most have come to that place at one time or another. I'm praying that that also would be the, the whole dynamic of our everyday life in, in terms of our sin, in terms of our decisions, in terms of our relationships, in terms of the way we approach our, our, our work and our money and our free time, that, that we will see so all this, God, It's a gift. And all I can do is to receive by faith and to trust you and to follow you and and yes, to seek to honor you and obey you with my life. But faith has to come first because your promise comes first. And I pray that all all the signs and seals that we carry with us, even whether that's just attending church or taking communion or doing wearing a t-shirt that talks about Jesus or or our church, that those would be not empty signs. Oh God, certainly not blasphemy. Don't let it be. But let our faith shine through these signs and seals. May your grace be experienced again in these signs and seals. And we'll continue to praise you for all you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.